This morning I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. We're in the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. For those of you who know me, you may know that this is a very precious passage of Scripture for me as I believe it tells us not only the great confidence that we have in our God and in His kingdom, but also it gives us the definition of worship. And we find an unexpected definition here. Uh, a definition that has truly been transformative and shaping of who we are as a congregation. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 28, um, but honestly, um, this morning's message is a little bit different than usual. It's the first of a two-part a little mini-series before we hop into Mark in just a couple weeks. This morning's message is um, perhaps a little more uh, pastorally motivated. Um, this morning, uh, coming out of many months of reflection and watching the congregation and watching our cultural moment and, and having conversations and having prayerful discussions with my community group and with the elders and in other places, there's an encouragement that I want to offer for you. It's an encouragement that is going to come in large part in the form of a very lengthy introduction to the passage this morning. I want to situate you in essentially a question. It's going to take me a little bit to get there, okay? Can you be patient with me? Um, as we get there, we will turn to the Word. We value the Word. We want to get there quickly. But I want to spend a few moments getting to a question this morning. You know, I don't have to tell you that this past year has been not a year marked by health or rest or peace. You know that. It's been a difficult year for nearly, I thought about this, I'm like, how do you write the sentence? For nearly every person on the planet. Like that's the definition of a pandemic. Yeah, it's been a difficult year. There's been personal loss by so many in our congregation, right here in our midst. There's been distance and even isolation at times. There's been disagreement that at times has become brokenness. You know what I'm talking about. I think back to the very first sermon that I preached when we first began to gather again in persons uh, nearly three months into uh, this COVID pandemic thing, way back at the Connection Room. It was a sermon of lament, celebration, yes, but also of lament. And we're right to bring our sorrow to the Lord. He knows us, and He loves us, and He knows what we walk in with when we walk into a room like this in a season in which we're in today. But this, that sermon was over a year ago. A sermon on lament, thinking that, man, we need to lament what has gone before us in these difficult three months. I didn't know that I would still be reflecting and, and that we would be experiencing all that we've experienced 12 months later. I did the math. It's 390 days since I preached that sermon, and that sermon was three or four months into a very difficult time. It has been a year of disruption. There have been so many of our normal, and I believe faithful ways of being together that we have been since the nine years since we first began as a church plant in this community that have been disrupted. There, never in all my pastoral life would I have thought that I would say a sentence like this, and I've said it a number of times. In fact, I've found myself having to argue for this sentence. For the sake of our health as a congregation, 
we should limit our time together and only gather in one another's homes with great caution. What? In the, if, I, if somebody would have told me 10 years ago that I would say a sentence like that, I would have thought they're crazy. I, I don't know that I could have imagined a scenario where that encouragement not to gather and to be cautious about being together at all would make any sense at all. That sentence is almost completely opposite of everything that I believe, everything that you believe, and, and honestly, almost everything that we read in the Scriptures, almost everything. But for quite a while, it has been true. Out of a love of neighbor, we have sought to not bring disease into their home. And so this is what we practice. This morning, I want us to spend our time together. And there's a reason why I asked you to open up Hebrews at the beginning, even though we haven't read it yet. I want us to spend our time together with the word open in front of us to observe something about ourselves. I want us to notice what has changed about ourselves, about our households, about our community groups, and about our congregation. What has changed? I want us to stop for a moment and notice that so many of the ways that we are today, even with so many of the restrictions that have been lifted, so many of the previous practices now available again, that so many of our ways of being today are not at all the same that they were a year and a half ago. Are you tracking with me? The way that we are today is radically different than the way we were not long ago. In some ways, that's a good thing. Many of us, you know what I'm talking about when I say that you entered COVID and thought, wow, this might be, a, it's a tragic scenario, but this might be an opportunity to reorient our household and consider the activities that we are involved in and so on. What a great thing to do as those calendars and activities were disrupted. But perhaps we should use this time now to ask ourselves, is what we have done in the last year and a half good? Is this the way that we ought to be? I wonder, have there been accidental patterns of being that have crept into our lives in this season of isolation? I'll say it again. Accidental ways of being. Habits in your households that you've developed in a year and a half. It struck me that... um, how many of you have tried to set a New Year's resolution? You know what I'm talking about? Come on, I, a little bit of participation would help, all right? Anybody here ever tried, tried to set a new habit of any kind? And how many weeks do you get in? Maybe days, all right? Are you with me? You know how hard it is to set a new habit. But the entire world has spent eight months of nearly forced new habits. And we already established that the, that the sort of baseline idea wasn't even a particularly good one, though it was necessary. 18 months of a new habit. When you do a new thing for 18 months, first of all, it's not a new thing anymore. It's just a thing. And at some point during the course of those 18 months, it's not just a thing, it's a thing that you don't even know you do anymore. Really, this morning is an encouragement to the church to ask ourselves, do we notice what we're doing? Can we tell the way we're being? The local body of believers, the church belongs together. 
For nine years, we've made that argument. We discover wisdom and faithfulness, not as autonomous individual households, which is the normal, habitual way of being in our culture, that you're autonomous. You, you figure it out, and, and it's yours. You have the freedom to be who you are. That's the normal way of being, but we believe that we aren't free to simply be who we are, but we together belong to Christ. And we aren't autonomous. We aren't simply individual households. But we belong together in fellowship and prayer with one another. We believe this. And we also believe that the Lord does his sanctifying work in the context of community. We believe that it's not just good to be together because it isn't so nice to be loved together. We believe that it's good to be together because it's in those contexts that we're challenged. And we we suffer difficulties, and we even enter into conflicts, and we have the opportunity to see God's redeeming grace at work in the midst of the congregation. But there's been so very little of in the midstness for 18 months. That argument is not only opposed to the conventional wisdom of the radical individualism of our culture, it's simply difficult, if not impossible, to practice a year of pandemic and social distancing and then turn around and think that we can just go back to some previous way. You see, we have, we've moved into an autonomous and isolated way of being for the sake of something healthy. But really all we've done is we've moved into really the way that the rest of the cultural naturally operates anyway. And we think that there's going to be some sort of new push 18 months in that we know how to be together We have whole new habits to observe. I would offer this illustration for you. Uh, We've put ourselves something like on bed rest for the health of our body. We observed something that was wrong, and we put our our bodies on, on bed rest. It's like a person who has a broken limb, and they have to be put in traction. But over time, as the limb heals, it becomes dangerous, even unhealthy, for the person to remain in bed any longer. You see, sometimes no doctor prescribes you should just lay in bed all day. Like you just, If your body is basically healthy, if circumstances are essentially normal, but you're just meeting something that needs a little diagnosis, no doctor says lay in bed all day for months and months and months. But when there's a very serious issue, it might be the right thing for a doctor to say. Some of you have been on bed rest. You know what I mean. You know that that's good at times. But if you were still there, imagine the tragedy that would be happening to your body. Your limbs need to move. Bed sores need to heal. And as much as it was needed for the health of the body for a season, bed rest just isn't the way we were made to be. And so comes the truly hard part of healing. Any of you who have been on bed rest or had a limb that was immobilized for a series of time, you know that the next step is called physical therapy, right? This is the business of physical therapy to teach the body to move in the ways that it was made to move. Often after a season of failure to use those muscles, it's an intention to get those muscles to to move the way they were made to move to begin with. And because it's been so long, those new movements can often feel unnatural, even though they're the most natural things for the body to do. And they can even hurt to do. Because they challenge the way that you've been for so long. My question is, is this us? 
Are there patterns that we have learned in the past, natural movements within the body of Christ that we've forgotten how to use after a period of disuse? I told the uh, gathering just before the service that there's a, a caution that I feel in preaching this message and honestly offering this introduction that I don't want you to feel condemned by a question. It's just a question. Your answer might be, no, I think things are going really well and I'm really thankful for God's preserving work. Praise God, that's your business. During the celebration, praise God for that. But if your answer is, Wow, I really hadn't thought of it like that. I think I have some areas to examine. Praise God. This is working. Just encourage you to ask the question. Let me give just a couple of examples. These are not accusations directed at any individual, but they're simply examples that might prompt you to think of other areas in your life where maybe habits have formed that you hadn't even noticed. One of the things that we practiced for quite a while in our congregation, especially in those last summer moving into the fall, was what we called microgrouping. That is an effort to minimize the number of people that your household would physically interact with in order to minimize the exposure to COVID-19. You know what I'm talking about? I can... Think of many instances in the past year that this effort has worked to cut off the spread of exposure, and it didn't move into yet another group because we were micro-grouping. But strict micro-grouping is not what we believe to be normal in the body of Christ. It is not a normal, faithful practice. Yes, it's a practice that we believe in community groups, but community groups aren't supposed to be micro-groups that don't interact with others. But they're supposed to touch others, and you're supposed to gather in other ways and in other forms and be together with the congregation in many ways and in your neighborhoods. Let me ask you the specific question. Has your circle of relationships contracted in the last year? That's where I'm going. Have your circle of relationships contracted in the last year? Is the Lord growing your love for a greater variety of his church as you interact with a more diverse, a broader group of who belong to him. Second example, neighbors. About five months ago, Sandy and I, we moved into a new neighborhood awaiting the completion of our new home. And in those months, we have met only a handful of our neighbors. And that's bothersome. There was a time when I was walking around my my home and I realized, I don't know anybody who lives here. uh, This is not normal. This is not the way that Sandy and I are, except for it's the way that we've been for 18 months now. Even those we have met, we've had none of those neighbors into our home, not, not one, one into a, like a backyard party that we we're having very briefly, and we've been in none of their homes. Friends, that's not what we believe about life in a neighborhood. It's not just what Sandy and I don't believe. It's, I don't think anybody here in Cross Point Coast believes that that's the way to be in a neighborhood. Our previous practice was to be together. And so the question is, have we developed a new habit that we need to observe and figure out how to break? Example three, decision-making and difficult conversations. We aren't bumping into each other as much as we used to, and yet many of us have made big, life-changing decisions in the lives of our households. I wonder where many of us have have grown to the practice of seeking counsel in a, in a wide variety of places in the congregations with life-altering questions, has some of that practice fallen by the wayside simply because we aren't together 
with the same diversity of people as much as we used to be? Have you made life-altering decisions with less impact and wisdom from the body? Or consider difficult conversations or issues present in our culture. Have we been able to have a depth and breadth of conversations within the context of the body that we might not have had if we, if we weren't so socially distanced from one another? Let me ask, have you formed serious, deep opinions about serious issues with less interaction and with smaller circles of regular relationships and conversations? Have you formed deep opinions without the context of the congregation? If you have, just observe it. Notice it. And ask what might the Scriptures have for us that would have been different even just 18 months ago. My concern, as I said, is there are, these are questions for your consideration, not accusations. Simply this, have we learned bad habits? Habits that were good for a season, but not good for the sustenance of the body on into the future. Now, like I said, it's a long introduction. I don't like introductions that are a lot long without getting to the scriptures. So let's get to it. Let's look at our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. We'll read through chapter 13, verse 13, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Our confidence is not in our reflection or ability to ask a question seriously. Our confidence is in you and you alone. Our confidence this morning is that your word would work in the midst of the congregation, that your spirit would be present and leave us with no excuse but to see our God and the kingdom that we have received by his grace. Lord, we trust you to work in our midst this morning, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we have to begin here. And friends, we just have to remember this at all times, that we have an unshakable kingdom. Even in shaken times, we have an unshakable kingdom. There is a logic to verses 28 and 29, that if I began this morning's message, if I told you that the passage this morning is chapter 13, verse 1, I would give you a new law. This is what you have to do to be good little Christians. But this isn't what we have. This even, the end of chapter 12, comes in the context of just the unfolding of grace throughout the whole of Hebrews. And there's a logic to Hebrews 28 and 29. The logic is receive a kingdom. Do you see it? Therefore, let us be grateful for what came first. The first thing is not our gratitude. The first thing is that we've received a kingdom. 
The first logical step is that we receive a kingdom. The next and most immediate step is gratitude. Let us be grateful for having received a kingdom. And having received a kingdom, therefore, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Worship is an overflow of gratitude. Gratitude is the direct creation of the grace of God to give a gift to his people. And this gift, friends, is an unshakable kingdom. The book of Hebrews is absolutely filled with therefores. It unpacks beautiful glories of the gospel and offers a clear and concise statement at the end of so many of these explanations in the form of a therefore statement. But this is the final great therefore statement of Hebrews. And in this clear statement, he has established and then gifted his people a kingdom. And so gratitude is response to God's grace. Gratitude is not a new command. It is a response to God's grace. Gratitude is the capstone of our faith. Gratitude leads to thus worship. God gifts God graces, we respond in gratitude, that gratitude becomes a life of worship in the context of his people. I don't want this morning's teaching on brotherly love and hospitality to be disconnected from God and his grace. This morning's message must be God-centered and God-compelled, or as I said, it is simply a new legalism. At the heart of true Christian love and hospitality is confidence and gratitude. And I don't want to miss confidence when I talk so much about gratitude. But we have a kingdom. You can do anything when you've been given and brought into an unshakable kingdom. What's going to shake you if you're in the unshakable kingdom of God? If your provision comes from the king himself into who has brought you into his kingdom. Friends, there is a confidence there that can lead to a radical gratitude and a radical generosity and a radical hospitality and a radical mission. We have confidence and gratitude. These are two things that in this world we have had so very little of. Confidence and gratitude. There hasn't been much to be confident in the last year and a half, and there's been much to mourn, as there's been much suffering. Gratitude is a means by which we remember the work of God to establish an eternal and unshakable kingdom. Gratitude remembers what we have that is is more sure and more confident than that which is shaking around us. This is a kingdom, not that we are waiting to enter someday, but it's the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray how? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We've entered his kingdom not off someday, but because we've been purchased into it by his work on the cross. We are in his kingdom today, and he's the king of that kingdom, and he will care for his citizens. It's a kingdom of grace. John Piper offers this quote, grace is the hospitality of God 
Like, period. Just pause there for a moment. That's good. Grace is the hospitality of God to welcome sinners, not because of their goodness, but because of his glory. We don't earn our way into the kingdom. In fact, the passage doesn't even say that we enter into a kingdom, but that we have received a kingdom. Do you see? It's a gift. Because God is glorious and his kingdom is bountiful. Like the house of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs chapter 9 that we looked at just a few weeks ago. He has brought the simple and the sinners into his house to experience life and forgiveness. This is the grace of God to provide space for a people who were strangers and bring us in as family. God's hospitality has created a whole new household, a whole new kingdom. And as we see in Hebrews chapter 13, God's hospitality has fashioned not only a kingdom, but a family. That's a really big deal. This isn't just a place with citizens with responsibilities. This is a kingdom made up of family, the Lord God and his children. Chapter 13 unpacks what gratitude and worship work like practically on the ground. One of my favorite things about the connection between chapter 12 and 13 is that it speaks that thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now if something, if the scripture tell me to offer to God acceptable worship, I should ask myself, what does acceptable worship look like? Like which key should we sing in? Which genre should we sing? What instruments should we use? How often should we sing? Do you see what I mean? And then he launches into chapter 13. He doesn't say a lick about singing. Sorry, David. (laughs) Right? He tells us what acceptable worship looks like, and it looks like a life lived with reverence and awe. It looks worship, acceptable worship, looks like brotherly love continuing in the midst of the congregation. And so let us look at it. We look at two things this morning. The first that we see is that we are together in love. Because we have been received or been brought into an unshakable kingdom, we are together in love. The passage in verse, chapter 13, verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. And the word continue strikes me. The last 18 months has presented us with an interruption in the ways that we have loved one another. It's what drew my attention to this passage to begin with, as I considered a number of passages that we could have turned to. Ought we today ask the question, how ought brotherly love continue? How might it even need to be re-sparked in practice? Perhaps we should be challenged to hear the sentence as, let brotherly love begin again. It's time, church. Look at verse 2 with me. It unpracks brotherly love in this way. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The Lord is often, throughout the Scriptures, interested in the treatment of strangers. The Old Testament has numerous examples of the Lord calling Israel to welcome those who are the alien and the stranger into their midst and treat them with a great charity and love and welcome and, you could say, hospitality. 
Jesus himself spoke of giving food and water to the least of these brothers of mine. And I think the word brothers is important in that sentence. To the least of these brothers of mine. And in so doing, you've offered hospitality to Jesus himself. The New Testament letters often instruct the church to show hospitality. Do just a little concordance search. Turn to the back of your Bible, do a little search on your phone, and you'll see hospitalities everywhere. And it's normally in a list of instructions for the church, given the grace of God. Now, the passage speaks of angels unawares. Don't have a lot of time to deal with this in detail. There's a number of options as to what that means, but I think probably the most basic uh, option that that is speaking of is the author of Hebrews is alluding to a story in Genesis 18 in which Abraham offers hospitality to three men whom he did not at the time recognize as angels. I don't necessarily think that he's speaking about the church who have just all the time entertaining angels unaware. They don't realize they've got all kinds of angels going through their house like some sort of angel hotel, you know. But hey, some Abraham, we happen to know his name, did entertain angels, and he was completely unaware until he'd offered them food and shelter and place. I don't think the point is that we should offer hospitality just in case we happen to entertain an angel in the process. It's not like God sends us secret shoppers or corporate shoppers into the church. I, I was a supervisor at a large bookstore in, in Chicago, and they would do this. The corporate store would send secret shoppers into our store to see if the employees were treating people nicely or not. It's not like God sends angels to check on us. Are they hospitable enough? No, they didn't even entertain angels unaware, right? I would even offer to you that we have something even more incredible. We have the children of the king in our homes for hospitality. Sit in that. The bottom line is this. I think the author is trying to heighten our sense of God's hidden purposes in the midst of hospitality. The business of the church is to be a people of gratitude. And right there in the midst of that gratitude as it takes shape in hospitality, God does amazing, miraculous things that are often hidden to us. I wonder how many times in the kingdom when we see one another face to face, and all the works of man are made bare. How many times will we see, I offered hospitality there, but I had no idea what God was doing. We should never think that welcome and kindness and hospitality is a small, mundane thing. It ought to be a habit of a thing, but it's not a small, mundane thing. It is a place where God plays where his angels, his messengers work. God is at work in his sovereign grace through the ordinary means of an offer of shelter and a meal. Hear that. You want to do an amazing thing for God, right? I know you, church. You love Jesus. You want to worship him. Offer a meal to a stranger. Bring in a brother, a sister in Christ in a time of need. And that mundane thing, we do not know what the Lord would do in the midst of his family in that place. I can tell you for, with absolute confidence, I'm a pastor today because of the hospitality of a particular husband and wife. They, they didn't, weren't doing that. They were just offering an invitation 
to a little boy whose parents were recently divorced. And here's the thing also. I look around the congregation. I've heard so many of your stories in, in our partnership conversations. And how many of those stories include a bit of hospitality and a normal place? And God used that in a powerful, miraculous force in your life. I want you to hear the truth of the gospel. We've received a kingdom. We've received a kingdom through the sacrificial grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. We who are sinners, who have believed in his name and received, trusted in his grace, Receive forgiveness of our sin because he's taken our place in judgment on the cross. This is the gospel. But in so doing, he's reconciled us to God. He's removed every barrier of our entry into his kingdom and brought us in as children. And God has filled his kingdom with family. This is the good news that is the gospel. The gospel is a family of strangers. That's why the passage says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, estranged from God, brought near in Christ. You see, hospitality is more than opening your home. Hospitality is opening your lives to the public demonstration of the truth of the gospel. Hospitality has to be one of the greatest means by which we watch the good news work. I would offer to you five steps of hospitality. I hate doing this. I hate five simple steps to obey God sort of stuff. But I think there are five things that you can learn that I know I am learning with you about what what is the nature of hospitality. The first is this, and we've already seen it. Hospitality is gratitude. Hospitality doesn't begin with an act of the will. Hospitality doesn't begin in us at all. It isn't a new legalism or a new self-righteousness. You can't present yourself acceptable to God because you entertained angels unaware. Gratitude is a response to having been brought into an unshakable kingdom. Hospitality is less an invitation to enter our home or to share our lives It's a recognition that we've been brought into the Lord's household and an invitation for others to enter God's provision for us. Do you see? It's not your home. It's not your life. You belong to Christ. Would you invite others to share that glorious kingdom space with you? That's gratitude. Hospitality keeps, secondly, the focus on worship, the glory of God. When hospitality is properly situated in the context of gratitude and not self-righteousness, all that we share is only what we have received, glory be to God. It, it robs us of, of the need to, dem- to clean up our homes and make them look just right so that we look good, right? Or to clean up your life to make it ju- look just right so that you can interact with someone. The Lord looks good. Because he is good. And we are simply inviting others to join us in our joy in him. So hospitality is not only generosity. Hospitality is an invitation to worship. Hospitality is the confidence that the Lord has provided, will provide, even for others who we would invite to walk with us. Hospitality is worship. Third, hospitality creates space in our lives. 
You see, the Lord is eternal and infinite, and I'm not. And the others want to confess this simple truth with me, right? The Lord is eternal and infinite, but we aren't. We have to consider how to live our lives, how to leverage what the Lord has provided with wisdom. One of my favorite images regarding hospitality is one that was given to me about 12 years ago, and it was a simple question. Is there room at your table? And I think you could begin by simply asking, like literally, at your table, wherever it is that you eat, is there room, physical space? And is there space in your lives for another, even a stranger, at the table? I can't tell you how many times Sandy and I have asked that question out loud to discover that we had filled our lives with unnecessary things. And we just went about the business of reordering and and prayerfully considering that question with others to seek wisdom in our life. Have you intentionally created space so that there is room for others in your day and your week? Some of you have quite literally begun to ask, is there room at your table? You've asked, is there a foster child that needs to be brought into your home? But I told you at the beginning, I don't want you to just ask household questions. Is there room at Cross Point Coast for a foster child? Are we prepared as a congregation to make room to bring another child into our midst? Is there room to regularly plan to invite a new guest after celebration service for a meal in an area in your home or in a lunch just down the road? Maybe that means missing one of your nice little lunches during the week to free up a financial space for a lunch with a stranger on a Sunday afternoon. In part, what I'm arguing is that hospitality is the fourth thing, which is the hospitality is to open your eyes prayerfully in the presence of your God to open your eyes. When we see another believer, do we see a stranger or do we see a brother? When we open our eyes and see another believer, do we see a stranger or do we see a sister? Hospitality is no less than seeing one another rightly. Let brotherly love continue. As the gospel has tutored our hearts to see the stranger as our brother and our sister, as family, brotherly love continues. So really, hospitality is a confession of faith. And fifth, hospitality is to open our lives. Not just our homes, not just our meal tables, our lives, our time, talent, and treasure. I would encourage you to broaden your view of hospitality. Your meal table is certainly a place for brothers and sisters in Christ. I would argue that for pretty much every single one of us, our meals should often be a place of Christian fellowship, and not just a Christian fellowship of good friends, but a Christian fellowship that includes strangers and those who are far off, often. But what about our vehicles? I have a neighbor in the church that many times has offered their vehicle to me when we were short a vehicle. I've seen them loan their vehicle to a missionary who was visiting for an extended stay. They even made it possible for me, to, for our family, to loan our vehicle to another family because we knew that There were a couple times when I would need a vehicle during the week, and so I just borrowed theirs. And this extension of love and hospitality via 
a vehicle. What about talents? I'm not a handyman. Just public confession. There are a number of people in this church that have offered to help in our home to teach me maintenance over the past 10 years and to fix some of my stupid, stupid errors in caring for our home. And others have literally made repairs during the course of the sale of our home and offered hospitality via their skills. And they did it with such generosity, so I didn't feel like a moron. I just felt like a person who didn't know how to do something. And I felt loved. Having friends over for dinner to enjoy a nice night isn't hospitality on its own. Hospitality knows that we've been brought into a kingdom that isn't an exclusive group but brings in the stranger. Christian hospitality sees our time, our talent, and treasure as a means by which we might extend the love that we have received in Christ to make it known in this world. Christian hospitality sees our fellow believers not as people to be used for our entertainment, as friend groups so often do. Your Christian brothers and sisters are not there for your entertainment. They are there to glorify God in the midst of the community. Hospitality is worship. Time, talent, and treasure. Unfortunately, we don't have a great deal of time to cover the last sentence. In verse 3, it says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. I've gone long in my treatment of hospitality, but verse 3 is an extension of hospitality. Brotherly love continues when we see those who suffer for the sake of the gospel as family and not just as sufferers they must have gotten something wrong. We do not shrink back from identifying from sufferers who are persecuted because of the kingdom that we share is unshakable. And we encourage one another in that we aren't afraid to lose the things of this world if we see someone else lose it and we, we identify with them because the kingdom that we share together is unshakable. We see ourselves not only as together as family, but together on mission, do you see? We are missionaries together. And to identify for those, with those who suffer for the sake of ministry of the gospel, we identify together as missionaries. I don't want us to miss the most immediate application, which is a clear reference to suffering and identifying with those who are literally jailed for the sake of the gospel, away from comfort and away from freedom. But I also look at the moment in which we live, and these are shaken times. We don't live in the same culture or social structures that we lived in not long ago. I'm not named, I am named after a prophet. That doesn't make me a prophet. But I'm opening my eyes a little bit, and I'm seeing shifting times. These are times of uncertainty and change. My question is this. Are we prepared to offer hospitality, to identify with those who suffer for the sake of our shared mission in Christ? Will we identify with sufferers in our communities? There are other ways to suffer for our faith other than being imprisoned. 
Specifically, I'm becoming aware of some of the ways that it's become difficult to maintain jobs and positions of leadership, in, in, even in employment in the community, in an increasingly hostile culture. I know that's been hard for many of you. Are we going to remember these? The passage says, as though in prison with them. If a brother or sister loses his or her job because of Christian conviction, are we prepared to feel this as though we lost our job with them, to suffer this, to sacrifice this with them? Not only will we stand up for them, encourage them, remember together that we live in an unshakable kingdom, that our employment as sons and daughters is sure and his provision is good, I've essentially taken this verse to functionally mean, are we willing to suffer with those who suffer? This is a question for us in the moment in which we live. I can't, I didn't predict the COVID-19 pandemic, but this is where we are. And we've sought to walk through it with brotherly love together. But I don't know what sufferings and persecutions are coming down the road. But when they do, as they often do, Let brotherly love continue. This is the context into which Hebrews was originally written, and it's the context into which we must receive it today. I would offer just a quick personal note. The past 18 months have been particularly difficult for pastors. I know a lot of you know a lot of pastors and missionaries and other servants of the gospel in particular areas of the world. Many have lost more in life changes and and death and division in their ministry than they ever would have imagined. All of this loss comes in the midst of all, all these pastors experiencing all of the personal loss that all the other households have experienced. There's hardly been a week that has not called for some major change or decision or adjustment to normal ministry. And listen, I'm not saying this for me, but you know pastors, and I would call you church, let brotherly love continue. These missionaries and ministers of the gospel in a variety of places that you are involved are brothers and sisters. Go and reach out to them, remember them, pray for them, identify with them, join them, and show hospitality. Brothers and sisters, this is what I want us to know today. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But so many around us are very shaken. You have names and images and faces coming to your mind of those who are very shaken right here in the moment that God has chosen for you to live. Right in the midst of the relationship that God has chosen for you to have. There is a challenge for us. As the culture around us becomes increasingly hostile, as it was for the original recipients of this letter, as the culture around us becomes increasingly inhospitable, the call is for believers to continue in hospitality. I would offer a specific example as we close. It may seem like it comes out of left field, but it's some of where I'm trying to press for us to see an application for this passage. And so many other things that you yourselves would consider, particularly as you discuss this passage in community group. 
Sandy and I have reflected numerous times recently as we considered the cultural delusion of, of gender transition. And we've asked one another, what will happen when so many of the young people who are being encouraged to literally mutilate their own bodies with mastectomies and hormone therapy, what will happen when these precious creations of God, our fellow humanity, what will happen when they begin to ask, why did my parents or my doctor let me do this? Why did my friends act like this was okay? Why, why did my culture celebrate this? Is the church prepared to become a home for strangers or brothers and sisters such as these? That is just one of the many conversations that have happened in my home and in other relationships. Hospitality is more than a couple Christian friends having dinner this afternoon, you see. I would ask you what comes to your mind. What are some of the conversations that you have been impressed with? See, Hebrews 12 and 13 challenge me, challenges me that there is an acceptable worship. There's a way of life that we are to enter into that is not the normal patterns of life that we have fallen into. And so may we seek the Lord. May we be comforted and confronted by his Grace, And I pray that the Lord would encourage you in remembering this unshakable kingdom as he has chosen of all the birthdays you could have had, he has chosen to have you be alive today in these shaky times. Heavenly Father, I pray that according to your sovereign design and wisdom, that we would trust you in your province, providence, that you have called us into a kingdom, that you, we have received the kingdom through the grace of Jesus Christ, and you would have us be the church that you have made us today and not on a different day. And so, Lord, teach us what hospitality and identifying with those who minister the gospel looks like in this moment in which we live. Lord, we trust you. We love you. We, are, we desire to worship and reflect the grace that is in you. So we trust you in the name of Jesus. Amen.